Welcome to the Speak the Language podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. We're happy to have you back here for another week's episode. Before we get into the show, if you have a second and you're enjoying this podcast, please take a second and leave us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcast. If you're on Apple Podcast, writing a review helps out a ton as well. It just helps the show out a lot. Today is a fun episode. It's a different episode. I'm talking to a man by the name of Matt Ryan. He goes by uh, the Instagram name Duck Dog Vet. And uh, over the past, well, it had been a couple weeks ago now, um, we had a rare cold spell come across the southeast. It saw temps and freezing like we don't normally see down here, and it arose a lot of questions and um, potential issues towards folks that like to take their dog out duck hunting, like someone like myself and someone like several people that listen to this show. And so uh, I reached out to Matt because he put out a very interesting post and we kind of dove into the subject a little bit deeper, talked about that, and then just talked about general, I guess the way to, to describe it is like we talked about some things that um, every duck dog owner should know, but somehow every duck dog owner doesn't know. Um, like I learned some things on this podcast. I thought I was pretty knowledgeable, I guess, uh, on, on the subject of duck dogs, but he taught me some things that I needed to add. Dogs are so much fun, but it's important that we keep them safe. And so anyhow, it was a very interesting conversation. We're going to get right into it. And thanks for listening to the show. Matt, Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I know being a guy that likes to duck hunt and a person that is a veterinarian, you, you're probably more than busy this time of year. Would, would that be a correct statement? Um, for the most part, our, our clinics are not only real heavy on the, the duck dog side of things, we have a ton of field trial and hunt test um, clientele that comes through. So we're, we're hot and heavy with it all all points of the year there at that there at the clinic. Exactly. So, but um, let's just animal clinic of Oxford is where, where I'm at. So, gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. So, so you put out a, a post on your Instagram uh, last week because last week we had like the Southeast where you and I both reside, we're not known for having cold temperatures, <laughs> like not, not known for having temperatures like we had last week at all. You know, yeah, when we're first talking about water freezing up, they don't think about Mississippi or Arkansas or Louisiana. And, no. and uh, you put out this post that was um, basically kind of like a precautionary post, like, hey, if you are duck hunting and you are a duck dog owner, you know, think twice. And so that I kind of wanted to go straight into that because – I, at one point, was a first-time owner of a gun dog. I, at one point, had the assumption that my dog can hunt in whatever weather. This is what he's made for. This is what he's built for. It, you know, he can just go. He can hunt. That's what he's made for. And apparently, there's that's not necessarily true, and there's some, there's some precaution you need to take. So if we could discuss um, kind of that subject first and foremost about um, – cold and hypothermia stuff like you mentioned if we could kind of discuss that a little bit uh, and i'll say as i'm going through this if you have questions go ahead and stop me i'm not sure sure. that doesn't bother me at all that way we, get, we make sure we hit all the points as they come up but when you're looking at hypothermia with gun dogs it's it's not a one size fits all kind of answer um it's definitely much so a situational um kind of situation yeah. um just and just because you know dogs that are 
born up north in Michigan and live in that weather all year round or honestly acclimatized to it, they can handle a lot better than I'll, I'll use them and use my, I've got three dogs here at the house and my three dogs here that were in 75 degree weather two days before it dropped down to single digits and with four inches of ice in a lot of these places. Mm. And a lot of it comes down to that um, ability to acclimatize to those temperatures um, because there's not, just like in, in people, um, you know, 80 degrees in spring feels a heck of a lot hotter than 80 degrees in August and September. Um, we've just gotten used to it. Mm. Our bodies have to have time to adjust to it. And if we put them in those situations where their bodies aren't adjusted to it properly and haven't had exposure and time to acclim acclimate to it, these the way their body reacts is just heavily exaggerated. And so when these, and that's why I was I had concerns. I had several people reach out to me saying, Hey, I'm seeing this with my dog on these hunts, even after I put that video out. And it was, you know, signs of hypothermia because they were um, swimming their dog or, and, and keeping, or letting them stand in the water, not keeping them dry, that kind of deal. Um, and just because of the exposure. So it's, like I said, it's not a, some of these questions are hard to answer black and white because there's not a good black and white answer across the board from North to right. South. Right. Uh, it's all about, um, you know, how quickly those temperature changes if they've been exposed to them. And it's the other way around, even though we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it here in a bit, if we have any time, well, with hot temperatures and hyperthermia, those, these dogs down south in the summer, even though it gets hot, you got to kind of watch them. They usually handle it better than a dog that was, that's pretty much stays up north. So, but, um, but as far as everything goes, you know, generally when you're looking at kind of me personally, um, you know, if, I had, a, I had my black lab dolly. She was out with me on Tuesday. It was low twenties. She had a vest on. We were in swimming water, but we were out of the wind and there's a very low wind and she handled it great. Um, but if we had any wind coming through there at all to where she wasn't able to stay out of it once, once she got back up on her stand, we were hunting public. Um, so we weren't in a blind. I probably wouldn't have taken her just because I know that when she start looking at being wet and being the cold in that low twenties, that they can start um, burning a lot of, energy with them and a lot of uh, using a lot of glucose storage is pretty fast yeah. and that's where we start getting into some trouble with it all um yeah. and so um you know but you know if it was what run of water situations 20 degrees had a way to get her out of the out of the water i probably would have probably would have taken her even if it was if even if it was windy just because you know, there's not a heavy submersion aspect to it and they're not usually not in the water as long um what does the so, – because that made me think – because, so like, I was – you and I were, were messaging back and forth the other day because I got I, – I, I, I caught flack on Instagram, which was kind of – I understood it because I, I – what I did, because I, I liked your video so much, I shared it on my page. And, like, yep. I, said, I, said, I said, like, you know, be mindful out there, you know, think twice about hunting your dog. They're not used to these kind of temperatures, whatever, whatever. And then like two days later, I upload a story and it's my dog Knox swimming back with a teal in his mouth and he's swimming through ice. And yeah. I, I understand, you know, kind of the the polarity of those two different, you know, and someone was like, you were just talking about being careful about where you hunt your dog. And, and I was like, well, for one, you know, I've hunted Knox in 28 degrees before. It wasn't, you know, and, and but what, and that's, that's all I was thinking of. What I was interested in is when you and I were messaging back and forth about that, you said I would, you know, something about 
how shallow it was. So what what yeah. difference does I'm not aware of what difference that would make. And so when you're looking at depth of water, you know, you're looking at and I guess I'll use extreme examples, a shallow flooded rice field where they're, you know, elbow deep or for us mid shin deep just a couple inches even though they're still getting wet uh, while they're running and splashing with with everything they're typically not submerged to where their backs floating right at the water level or some dogs right under it um, increasing the time that they're in that cold water um, it's, uh, but also what it does is not the submersion but because they're running and running's a lot quicker than swimming they're out there with less time and so, and to say a depth of water that's idealistic, that changes with, once again, circumstantial with each dog, because each dog is taller and shorter with all of it. Right. Um, you know, and I'll even say this, we're looking at all working dogs, Boykin Spaniels compared to some of these taller, just burly filtral dogs, like obviously a Boykin Spaniel, some of its swimming water is going to be, you know, knee deep on a big, tall lab. Right. So, like I said, it's a lot of it is not the, you know, like I said, black and white of, yes or no here's your your guidelines to follow but it's knowing your own dog and seeing knowing what they can be what they can handle after they've been exposed to these elements you know knowing at this water depth they're going to swim or or be running um knowing what they typically can can handle on temperature because i've owned dogs in the past that were just real lean dogs didn't have much body fat on them no matter how much we fed them and obviously they didn't handle cold temps like some of these big burlier um you know especially male dogs can and yeah, so that makes that makes sense um do, do what do you so like if a person especially if someone because i keep thinking about how i was when i you know first gun dog I ever had like mm-hmm. how, is there a way that or that you suggest or things that you can look for as far as the guys like okay I understand that I need to determine how my dog handles, you know, certain temperatures. So I know kind of where a threshold is, but how do yep. I do that? You know, how, how do I, you know, how do I know if my dog's handling this well or not? Yep. And so the first thing we can do, um, even though it's, it's not really getting to answer quite yet, but always, I keep saying it is when you have these big temperature swings, allow that dog to safely spend time out in that temperature, um, allow them to, to feel what it's like. Um, you know, these kennel dogs that have these heated dog houses and are outside, they tend to acclimate a lot better than these dogs that are laid up on the couch and in our beds in the 75 degree household. They tend to work, you know, not handle it as well, just because it's a bigger swing for them. These ones that are in a good kennel setups, but that are exposed to it a little bit heavier. Um, when you're looking at kind of clinical signs, um, you kind of have different levels. You have a mild a moderate and a severe hypothermia that you deal with mm-hmm. with this mild hypothermia um, shivering is a clinical sign of it but we all know that these dogs when they get excited and they're watching these birds look and their eyes are the sky just like we all dream about they're usually shivering and excitement and so mm-hmm. that can be something that can be that's not my favorite thing to go off of just because dogs shivering am i going to take it out of the woods and stop a hunt every time no um, but when you start seeing these other clinical signs of them being a little bit lethargic, not being as energetic to go get a bird, um, or being weak, almost like they can't get up the dog ramp as easy, jump onto the dog stand as well. Um, get up and down some of these river banks or situ or over logs as well as they could. That can be signs that they're starting to get a little bit cold and, um, hyperthermic and just a little bit weak. Mm-hmm. Um, as we get into these moderate and severe cases, 
um, you'll get some decreased mental acuity in that video you're talking about. I kind of referenced it as sloppy work. Um, a lot of people would, you know, let's see that they start getting some cast refusals in the field or some no-goes when they're sending them. Um, just because the dog, one, is I feel two things happen. They know their bodies really well. And a lot of times, and especially with in hot weather, they'll purposely not go on command because they know that they're pushing the limit. Mm-hmm. But also, they're mentally, they, they're not processing it as well. Their bodies and their brain isn't working as great. And so a lot of times they're like, I know I'm supposed to do something, but I can't quite remember what it is. Right. Um, and then as things get a little bit worse, um, the weakness can get worse. They can get some really stiff muscles that aren't working great. Um, and then if it gets real, real, real severe, and this gets into some hypoglycemia issues, those sugars drop really low, they can even have some seizures start popping up. Mm-hmm. So that's where we start seeing these, you know, heavy shivering that you, you think oh, it's just a little bit more heavy than normal, kind of get a little bit weak and lethargic, especially if they start having some sloppy work start popping up. Uh, uh, me personally, I always err on the side of caution. I say, hey, guys, you know, I'm, y'all keep hunting if you want, but I'm, I got to get back to the truck with the dog. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then things I, I always do, um, at least in my, in my personal books, I, like I said I earlier, talking to you, I pretty much strictly public land just because I like the aspects behind it. Not because I don't have access to public, to private, but I always keep an extra wind, at least just small windproof jacket watered up and thrown in the gun box there at the boat. That way, if it is, if it's a lot, if it's colder than I um, expected it to be, I take that out. And when they get back up on the dog stand, I just drape that over them. Um, so that's going to help keep some wind off of them um, or just some kind of old warm coat that, you know, it's not going to stick out real bad. Just drape it over them, try to retain as much of that body heat as you can. Um, and then, you know, trying to set them up to where they're out of the wind, you know, even for the public land hunters, um, you know, having some kind of blind with the covering. We've all heard of Momarsh. I, I, I own one. Um, one, because I had a, a really, really, really light colored yellow lab that I hunted for quite a while. So it helped hide her a little better. But after getting that, I noticed that the covering on that was a lot better than I expected on keeping wind off over to keep her warmer. Um, and it's just a, a lot of things that people overlook, even on the public land aspect um, that we can do. Of course, private land, you can have some blinds, you can stick them in and some heaters you can put on them. Um, I've seen guys when it gets really cold, take the little um, single model buddy heater propane heaters um, and hang those on a tree right next to the dog just to try to reflect some heat back at it. Oh. Uh, when, when, when these dogs, um, a little bit, but if you're, if you want to be, um, you know, proactive with it all, you can definitely, you know, carry a couple little bit of extra equipment that will really allow yourself to, you know, hunt these dogs down into some cold tents, um, in a very safe, safe manner, especially if you know the clinical signs to watch out for. Right. Um, but once again, just to, just to hit it really hard, a very, very, very large portion of this is allowing them to acclimate to these temps. Um, at least for a day or two before taking them out hunting in them. Cause like, once again, like we saw going from 75 to, you know, single digits in 48 hours, that's going to be a big swing for them to have to adjust to, especially once wet. So, so it could, could that be something as simple as like it, take knocks, you know, take my dog, for example, like when it drops like that, I just leave them. If I leave them out in the backyard longer, you know, for a good yeah. bit of chunk of that day, something as easy as that. It makes sense. I've never thought about that, but it makes total sense. It gives them exactly to do it. Yeah. And, and it's like I said, it's, it's people see it during the summertime a lot. Like I said, 80 degrees in September, 
feels a lot more comfortable than 80 degrees in, during turkey season. So yeah, that's true. It, so, but yeah. Um, one other thing I always keep on hand with these. Um, well, I say always try to always, I'll keep that in because sometimes I get hungry and eat it. Um, I just keep some kind of snack in the blind bag to, to feed them um, because, and you know, you laugh about it, but, and I always choke it choke about it. I'm like, well, I guess I can share your treat with you a little bit and I'll give them a little bite of it. But when they start getting cold, a big part of it is as they're shivering, their body's burning glucose. Um, and as that glucose levels decrease, they're losing their um, source of energy for those muscles to keep operating properly. Mm-hmm. And so if their glucose supplies keep dropping and keep getting used up, you get to the point where they can't properly shiver. And that's where that um, the seizure situations come in. If the glucose gets low enough with, so hypo, with hypoglycemic seizures. And so, I mean, people joke about it, but you know, and it's not ideal by any means. I'm not saying we need to feed every, every dog a honey bun, a box of honey buns every hunt. But, you know, if you notice that they're acting a little bit weird, just give them a honey bun. You see oh. if it see if it fixes them or some beef jerky. Um, if you want to look at some redneck fixes of it. But there are some, um, and I have to go back and get the brands. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, there are some, like, canine-specific gel packets for um, those kind of situations that you, that you can order. Um, it's all completely safe for them. But like I said, any, any kind of carbohydrate or sugar that's not a, that's a true sugar, these um, sugar alternatives can get toxic for them, like the xylitol and everything, the sugar substitutes, right. but something to give them some food in the middle of that, that hunt to boost that, that sugar a little bit if you're starting to have some issues. Yeah. I mean, cause like, and this is backtracking a little bit, but I could like, like, like my dog, like Knox, he jumps in the water, gets a duck. I put him back on the stand. It could be 80 degrees outside and he's going to shiver. He just yep. st- stands up there and treat, you know, that's what oh, he yeah. does. I, I see it running, running master test during the summer. I mean, it's 90 to hundred degrees and they throw a bird and that dog's up there shivering like it was zero just yeah. because they're excited. Yeah. So I, yeah, I couldn't go off that one, that one very much. How <laughs> do they, uh, how often is it that you see like, you know, mild, moderate, severe hypothermia? How, how often is it that that you think folks run into like hypothermia so bad that they have to go to a clinic or Lord forbid the dog, you know, dies or anything like that? Is that is that common if they push it too hard? So I'm not going to say it's something we see, you know, a lot during each hunting season. But I will say this, I've, in the last five years, I've had three buddies who I know 100% their dogs have passed away due to hypothermia. Oh. Um, and every time it was on the situation of just like I put that video out with to where it was kind of mild temperatures for wintertime. It's December, January, and all of a sudden a cold front hit and dropped it down to, you know, the teens are colder and the dogs. I mean, just like every hunter, we get we get excited because the ducks are supposed to put, come down with cold fronts and they go out that next day and Every, every every time it had happened um, was that exact circumstances. God, so, I would be, I don't know what I would do. I would feel terrible. Yeah. Like, obviously, those guys weren't trying to do that. You know, I mean, they were just, I mean, I yeah. could well, have done that. Like, we had an instance like this last year, I think in January, where it dropped real quick. And I had Knox in the truck, and I was driving out to – to go hunt. And for some reason I had never sought out any education on this or anything like that. It just, the thought just kind of dawned on me. I was like, 
it hasn't been this cold and Knox has never hunted and stuff like this. So um, a friend of mine, uh, Jordan Gurley, who trained, mm-hmm. I, I shot him a text. Cause I, oh, I, know, I know Jordan well. He's a good dude. Good guy. Oh, yeah. And uh, I shot Jordan a text cause I knew he'd be up cause I knew he was probably hunting too. I was like, Hey man, are you running your dogs this morning? And he was like, absolutely not. And he was like, there's, he's like, it's, it's too cold. And I was yep. like, fair enough. And ever since then, I've been more mindful about that kind of stuff. But that's why I wanted to do things like this podcast, because I just don't think that's as widely known about as it should be for the amount of duck dog owners there are down here, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and for most circumstances, you know, you never think about Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana. You really don't think about it getting cold enough to have that situation very often, but you know, about once a year, we'll have a big enough temperature swing to where, you know, if you just got to leave them at the house for a couple of days, let them acclimate right, and then you're fine. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I guess, I was trying to think, I had one other thing that came in. Um, as far as like, and I mentioned in that video a little bit, um, as far as like reacting to it, the biggest thing, so of course, being a vet, I've got my vet box um, full of all the fun stuff that everybody wishes they had to carry with them. But I really leave that in the truck most of the time. I have just a small human, like person's first aid, people first aid kit that I carry in there. And what's in those, and what's in those little first aid kits is really all you need in a boat for a dog also. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this situation, if you think they're getting too cold, of course, having the extra coat and everything to wrap them up in. But those little like space blanket, like emergency aluminum full type blankets is one of the best things you can do to hold that heat in and just wrap them up as best you can. Of course, and I think I mentioned it on the, didn't mention on the prevention, but wear safe. And I say that because, you know, if you're hunting a, you know, White River, Cache River, especially that's full, you know, swift current has a lot of buck brush in it. Mm-hmm. A vest can prevent certain levels of, you know, you know, danger you got to watch out for. But a properly fitted vest, keyword being properly, because if not properly fitted, it's not going to be any good, um, can help really allow them to maintain their their core temperatures a lot better as well. I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to ask you about that and I almost forgot because it's like, I'm not sure, like, I don't really know, like Knox is pretty properly fit, I'm most sure, but. I mean, I see that all the time. I'm sure you do too, where like the dog has a vest on, but I'm like, that's not stopping anything. No. And you want, you want a snug fit, um, but not so snug or tight that it's going to prevent them from having um, a proper normal breathing kind of respiratory um, cycles going on. But the biggest thing is if it's too loose, that cold water is just filling that vest up and pouring out whenever they get back on a stand. Um, these vests are supposed to, the way I think about it in my head is fit like a wetsuit to where they're tight enough to keep um, a little bit of, they're not, they're, tight, they're so loose that they'll let a little water underneath naturally and, and in, but it's going to, it's more so going to retain that body heat and heat up that, um, that water pretty rapidly. Um, and I mean, and I'll say it this way, we were out, like I mentioned, being hunting on Tuesday morning. Um, I forgot my gloves in the truck. And so even though she just jumped up out of, out of the water from picking up some birds for us, um, I just slid my hands under Dolly's vest to warm them up. And it was like, I was wearing a good pair of gloves. Um, but I mean, it's properly fit. It's, she was, she was a little wet under there, but it's, it was doing exactly what it was meant to do. Do you have a brand dog vest that you like particularly? <laughs> well, my, I really, really, really wish they still made it this way. Um, 
but the old school Avery Boaters parkas um, that have the flotation down the side of them. Yeah. My absolute favorite one I've ever found. And so just because I'll, I'll, they fit just like every other neoprene rubber vest, but I, I like that extra little flotation um, they have down the side of it. And so I, when I first found out they were going to change the style of them, I bought like three of two or three different sizes of them. And so I'm just, I'm still ro- rotating through those as, do- as dogs come through. Yeah. But um, I think Mo Marsh may have one that has some flotation on the side of it. I'm a big, I'm a, I like that extra flotation just because it's going to help them um, float a little bit easier and better. And it's, I mean, it, gives, it just get, it makes me a little more hopeful that if, if a dog ever does get into a, a sticky situation while they're, if they get caught up on a stick or a limb or some buck brush somewhere, that that extra flotation can help them, you know, help them out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. really, I mean, a neoprene vest is a neoprene vest. I do prefer neoprene over, over the, the canvas type stuff. Um, I think it's a little bit tougher. Um, and I like the, little, the stretch that it has with it. Um, just so you can get these these vests fit a little bit better. Um, but also not only looking at, and this isn't really hypothermia related, looking at having the proper proper fit, but also cutting that chest out to where it's not rubbing um, there and there, their, their armpits. Uh, causes, oh, yeah. I know, took, dude, I took scissors to mine. Yeah. Because like, Knox is like a lot of British labs. Knox is like super broad shouldered, real thick neck. and. Uh-huh. And he like, like I had to take scissors and trim out around the neck and the shoulder, which is just too tight. Like it was, I was like, and so it's still super snug, but I had to trim it yeah. out. Well, that, and that's where um, you got to trim it. Don't trim it too much though. Cause if you trim it too much, then like these guys have this like half inch strip down the middle of it is holding it together. Yeah. Doing anything. Yeah. So, but, and it's like, and it can take, usually when I, when I trim, trim it out for, for a dog, I mean, I'll sit there and I'll mess with it for 15, 20 minutes one day, and then I'll go and do some chores or eat dinner and then come back to it the next day and trim a little bit more. And I just take a little bit off every time until I'm perfectly happy with it. So you don't have to get too specific, but I definitely like it. I, I get kind of OCD when I'm trying to fit a, fit a vest on there. Sure. So. What kind of role does, uh, does food play? Like, because, I mean, I know there's like – and again, I'm not tied to any dog food brand. So I'm asking like, with this isn't like a, you know, asking you to plug a sponsor or anything like that. I just like, a, uh, I've, you know, there's, there's a lot of brands out there, you know, yep. that, that say that it's, it's almost like, it's almost like a supplemental deer feed. You know, they talk about how much proteins in this and you don't know, like, you don't know what to trust. You don't know how much, how much of that is applicable. Um, yep. and I wonder about that. Cause I'm like, man, surely even with like, like if I'm trying to give Knox the best food that I can give him mm-hmm. probably would have, probably would have something to do with how he can handle the cold as well or, or no. So I'm going to say yes and no, meaning okay. that um, if they're underweight or overweight means they're typically they're out of shape. Right. And if they're not, not in shape that they can definitely um, have some issues flare up. Mm-hmm. Still got battery. Um, and they just won't handle it as well as a, just like an athlete, those athletes handle temperature changes and hot, cold weather and everything better than, you know, the local redneck watching the NASCAR on Sunday afternoon. Um, but, um, kind of to fill all of that in, there's always conversation of, do you feed before a hunt? Do you not feed before a hunt? Like, what do you do? Um, and there's not a real good cut, clear answer for that either, unfortunately. 
because, and I even go through this argument in my head with, with myself occasionally to where, you know, how do I recommend it? Because when you feed them, it's going to give them that um, kind of boost of carbohydrates and, and sugars and proteins and fats, and everything they need to handle these cold temperatures better. However, um, when you feed them, it tends to pull a little bit of blood from the extremities back to the core. And so do you start risking some, you know, extremity issues with temperatures and frostbite type stuff and all that kind of deal when you get to these real, real cold kind of situations. Mm -hmm. And so there's, once again, I, me personally, what I do is instead of feeding before a hunt, um, I'll carry those snacks with me. Um, if they seem like they're having an issue, I'm going to give them a little bit. I'm not going to give them a little bit every time so they don't start expecting it every time we're out in the woods. Um, but I usually, I'm, I feed once a day personally. Um, and so when I get back to the house or back to camp, I'm going to feed, you know, maybe an extra cup, a cup and a half when we get back, um, just to give them that, uh, replenishment directly after we, we, we hunt and they work. But then in the evenings, I'm going to give them their normal feeding. And so they'll get a little extra total that day, but I'm going to split that extra addition up to be right after the hunt. Um, and then I try to, I try to wait about 45 minutes to an hour after the heavy work, after they've been working pretty heavy to feed them just gets into some GDV supposed prevention. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, last one, like on the hypothermia thing. And so it's like, it made me wonder. So like I took Knox to Montana mm -hmm. part of December. Um, yeah. And granted, it was mostly like dry field waterfowl and some upland bird stuff. The only time he was in water is when he was crossing a ditch. Um, yeah. So he was never in it for any prolonged period of time. But at one point, it was like negative six. And I don't know. It made me wonder is like, could it be, was it like the fact that it was, you know, he was dry and he wasn't in water? Or I didn't know if humidity could potentially play a factor because like, I mean, quite honestly, the ne the eight below zero up there, when it was however cold it was during the big freeze, it felt about the same. So I was yep. like, I don't know if that played any factor at all. And all of it definitely can play a factor. Um, and like, and I would, I would have done the exact same thing as you. Like, and it's kind of what I did do is I didn't didn't want to hunt them when it was that big of a temperature swing and cold down here. But you know, if we were shooting dry field ducks and geese, and he had a blind to get back into, and at that temperature, as long as he had a good, you know, had a vest on and he wasn't, of course, keeping an eye on him during the hunt, I'm going to roll out there just the same way. Hmm. Um, biggest thing, though, is if the ground's wet at those temperatures, just kind of keeping an eye on some of their, um, just maybe look at, if you want to be really, really, really cautious, throwing some boots or something on them for frostbite type stuff. But most dogs, you're not going to have that, that, that issue. And I would have hunted it just the same way you would have. Yeah. We yep. had, so, so my buddy, he had this, um, like this low temperature wax that he was putting uh -huh. on his dogs, the pads of their, their, their feet. Um, yeah. and I forget, it was something to do. So it was the same stuff that like, uh, that like, uh, sled dogs use, but it's like a protective wax or something when he said he used it when it gets below zero. Um, I don't know if you'd ever heard any of that stuff. I've heard of people talk about it. Um, I've never personally looked into it or used it very much, um, or at all. Um, and so it's hard for me to really weigh in on that, but I've heard of people using it and it's a lot, it's the same kind of thought process, just 
putting a coating on it to decrease um, kind of contact with those extreme cold temperatures just to prevent direct skin damage with all of it. Yeah. he Well, I used it on Knox because he, he like the first day we were out there, he, he brought a goose, he brought a goose back and like he, I, he was kind of favoring one paw and I thought he got something stuck in it. And I looked at it, wasn't anything wrong with it. And they were like, Oh, put this wax on there. And I mean, I went back to the truck, they gave me a wax, I put it on there and he, never slowed down yeah pretty cool. yeah it's probably and the same way when you reach down and grab something cold metal it's outside usually if you hold it too long you can get kind of tender and sensitive and, it, and once you get it protected or put a glove or something on it you're you're back to normal it's the same thing gotcha. yeah it's all about once again just the same with the vest just decreasing exposure and contact is what it's doing um. yeah Last thing I've already burned up plenty of your time, but last thing I want to, uh, I want to, I want to hit on before is, is there like, like in your, in your work and your time and being a veterinarian, are there like common things that you're like, uh, I don't, I'm not asking for like a list per se, but are there yeah. things that you're like, man, every gun dog owner needs to know this, or these are common misconceptions that a lot of people just seem to miss on anything yeah. like that. So the biggest thing that I wish, um, and I won't say that they miss or don't do or misconceptions, but the biggest thing I wish they would do, and well, it's a combination of two, is one, keep them at a healthy weight. Mm -hmm. um, just get on there. I, the one I like to use is Purina has a body conditioning score chart. You can Google Purina BCS. They'll bring up 20 different pictures of the same chart. Follow that because if we can keep them in a healthy weight and keep them um, in shape, they handle these things so much better with it's cold or heat or, or anything else. It's phenomenal. And then help your dog in and out of the truck when you can. Um, don't beat yourself up on it if you miss it once. Um, but, you know, if, if we can look at the thousands of times they jump from the back of the truck and catch themselves on the front, front legs and putting all that pressure through their, their bodies with that and control that, arthritis is going to be so much more well controlled and prevented and we're going to get to, to enjoy them in the field a lot longer. Um, we're going to have less orthopedic issues flare up. Um, going back to the, um, the weight management thing, like, and this is going to sound weird saying it. Unfortunately, one of my favorite things to do is fix eight torn ACLs in dogs. Um, and the reason I like doing it is because they're tearing. So if we can prevent how much they're tearing, that'd be great. So I don't have to see as many of them. Um, but, and the biggest thing that you see with these dogs is they're overweight and they're jumping in out of trucks and beating these joints, um, just, just to death. And a big part with dogs that's different than humans is that there's a genetic component with these ACLs. Um, genetically they're built, um, to have certain just breedings have a weaker ACL that over time slowly degrades. And so if we can protect them as much as possible, that degradation will be a lot slower than it would be if we were just letting them roll and kind of kind of go through life just like normal. And so typically what I do is um, if I'm thinking about it, I'll pick them up and take them off. But I make a big effort to at least take them off the tailgate or keep them from jumping down off of higher higher items. Now, if, if they're jumping up into the bed, is it ideal? I mean, no, but it's not that big of a deal either and so i'll pick them up if i can if not i'll tell them to load up and we, we keep on rolling um during the summer when we're training you know five six seven days a week in the morning um and then also in the evening um 
that I'm carrying my young puppy in the cabo truck and then my two older dogs in the bed. I've got a, like it's a hundred dollar ramp that I found at target um, just to lean on the, on the tailgate of the truck to let them run up and down it. So I don't have to pick them up, um, get covered in wet dog smell and all that kind of stuff. And it's real easy on their joints. That's man. I've never heard that. Like that's, that's small. I mean, I'm t- that's, I might have to start doing that. Cause like Knox jumps in and out of the truck all the time. I thought nothing about it. Like yeah. I'm, I'm telling on myself, but like, it's a, like every day I'm like, load up, load out. And he just, boom. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I do the same thing, you know, I, I get lazy, I get excited. We get, you know, behind or in a hurry, like, you know, they're getting out of trucks, but every time we can help them get in and out, especially mm-hmm. under a year of age, that's really, 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 really going to help these dogs out a lot. And so, um, you going back to the, the food, um, that I believe that's another area that owners can really get into micromanagement of these working dogs and really get some, some, some better work out of them. Um, but it's not the best for some of these multi-dog households or for pro trainers that have 20 or 30 dogs to have every dog on a different food. Mm-hmm. Um, me personally, I really like Karina's pro plan line of products. I've fed it ever since I've been in high school, but to say that that's the ideal food for every dog, I can't, I can't say that. Um, Cause just like people, Every diet affects every person a little bit different. So it's really not the brands. It's the ingredient profiles that are behind it. But the reason I want to bring the food back up is just a warning with grain freeze. Um, UC Davis, um, back in the 2017-2018 timeframe, their vet school made a link between grain-free foods, raw diets, and what's classified as a boutique diet, um, and an increased risk of heart disease with our, our pets. Um, specifically a process called dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM. And so um, I really, really, unless they justify and the, the dogs prove to me that they truly need a grain-free food, I, I, I can't recommend it because it, even though it's a low risk, it's a risk of a non-treatable disease process and what processes. And once these, once these cardiac changes occur because of it, you can't reverse them. Um, you're, you know, you got a dog that's with it. And typically once we catch it, it's not too long after that um, there were kind of kind of on that last leg of things with them. Mm. So, yep. And so, like I said, that's, that's why I, I wanted to get back to that too, is because um, a lot of marketing and just um, kind of bad things over the last, you know, 10, 15 years has led to a lot of misinformation out there about it. And so and that's yeah. one thing that I have that conversation at least three or four times a day with people about, you know, what's the gr- best thing to feed going in the grain free kind of, kind of conversation. Mm. Yeah. So, but what, but to kind of bring that full circle, I do recognize that some pets truly have grain allergies. Um, most of the time it's a protein allergy or sensitivity, but in the small group of animals that truly have a grain allergy and grain sensitivity, once they prove that they have these issues, I'm all for trying grain freeze. We just watch their hearts a little bit closer than we would uh, kind of the normal pet. Yeah. That's interesting. So. I, don't, I mean, cause I don't even know. I mean, I've got him on Purina right now, but I, I would it say on the bag like grain free? So I mean, like you would just know what to look for. Yeah, typically most of them do. Um, what I encourage clients to do is instead of just seeing where it says lamb and rice or chicken and you know corn or whatever's on the front of it, just turn the bag around to the back and see if it says, um, you know, if it's hard to start talking about sweet potatoes or any kind of legumes or beans. 
um, or if it's got rice, corn, barley, oats, just some kind of normal grain source in there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, trying to think of what else. Um, I mean, GDV is another thing that I've seen a lot of here recently. And that GDV stands for gastric dilatation of ovulus. Um, commonly you hear it called bloat or you hear about their stomachs flipping. Yeah. Yep. Um, this last calendar year, um, we're just, I guess, well, it's about since January. I know of five off the top of my head um, that have come in that individuals have found them passed away in their kennels because of these stomachs flipping. And kind of what happens is it's one of two processes. They can't confirm which one's happening because, unfortunately, it's not a situation where you can do research trials on it. But these stomachs either flip and then fill with gas or they fill with gas and fill with food and water and then start acting like a pendulum. And because that pendulum starts swinging, they finally flip all the way over. Mm -hmm. uh, but when it, whatever the two process it is, once they figure it all out, what happens is that when that flips, it kind of kinks off the water hose. Stuff can't pass through the stomach, out of the stomach into the GI tract or be vomited up. But also it kinks off the blood vessels to that area and it can get into a pretty deadly situation really quick. Um, you'll start seeing dry heaving, like I said, because they, they drive, they can't get what's in their stomach out that's kinked off. Um, and then you can start seeing some toxic changes occur within the bloodstream because of it. Um, and I just really encourage people that, um, to, to look at getting these dogs stomachs tacked to prevent that. Cause we've got a lot of money and time invested into it. Um, and there's things you can do feeding wise and work wise to prevent it. But a stomach, going in and getting that stomach tacked is the, the, the best way to look at it, to, at preventing it. Oh. Yeah. How, how invasive of a process is that? So there's a couple ways you can go about it. Um, the two most common ways are kind of the old school route where you go in and make the, the, the normal um, abdominal incision like you're going to go and spay a dog. instead of. And what we do is you actually take the stomach and tack it to the inside of the muscles behind that last rib. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also some newer methods where you can go in. Um, it's called pericostal. Um, kind of from the, instead of making a, a midline incision, you make an incision on the edge of their um, abdomen behind that last rib yeah. and grab that stomach and pull it up to that, um, that incision. Just talk with your vet with, and just see what they're most comfortable with. Cause that's the way, how you're getting your best results is if you have, a, if you can, if you talk to your vet, they're okay with tacking that stomach and they're comfortable doing it. Um, you know, allow them to do it in a way they're comfortable with. It will get you your best results. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Learning a lot in the podcast. I can talk working dogs just about all night. So, <laughs> no, I'd like, so like, like if I, would that be something like if, if I got, so if I got Knox's stomach tacked, uh -huh. I mean, like I'm, that's probably not, I can't do that and then take him hunting next week probably. Or is it like, no, typically what I like to do is um, I like to be safe with it um, just to make sure that those that incision in the stomach where it's attached to that muscle wall um, has plenty of time to to heal properly. And so typically when I when I go through surgeries, what I'll, I'll recommend owners do is um, or even clients that have these hunt dogs and these trial dogs is tell them, like, do it in a time where, you know, you're not going to be hunting much and you're, you're not going to be prepping for, for tests and trials that are coming up. Because it's going to take about 10 to 14 days for that skin to heal, for that, that um, abdominal incision. But I really play the safe game, me personally, and recommend three to four weeks of rest for the, that stomach incision um, to heal properly. 
that way too much activity doesn't cause that specific um, portion of location of surgery to have just too much motion going on with it and not want to heal. And then just kind of that attachment kind of fall apart. Mm -hmm. So, yep. And we, and we've seen it. Uh, We've had dogs that have been, have been attacked before. Um, I don't know where, but that, the, the surgical, the stomach portion of it failed and it was in there like a normal dog and it came in with a flip stomach. Um, Owners were real confused, but once we saw got in there, you could see where the two scars were for where the previous vet had tacked it, but it just didn't just didn't hold for whatever reason. Hmm. And so that's why I, I play the safer and I like to take three to four weeks off of any kind of work. What are the, I mean, are there other ways to look for the be like to try to prevent the stomach flip thing? Cause now that's, I mean, <laughs> I'm worried. So, there, I mean, there's a long list of things you can do. The um, the best thing to do is to control their feeding. Um, slow feeding is the, the best way to go about it. It's a way to explain it. Um, well, if it's through a slow feed bowls or adding water to their to their food to, and floating it to allow force them to slow down eating it. I've owned dogs where I had to do both, and they still scarfed it down, but it slowed them down a little bit. Um, you can look at elevating their bowls if they'll eat off of it. There's arguments for feeding once a day to twice a day. Um, like most people lean towards twice a day when looking at this, this bloat prevention. But like I said, I'm, I like feeding once a day though, um, just for the, the working purposes. And, and my dogs personally use their food better and hold weight better when I feed them once a day as compared to twice a day. Well, not like Knox is kind of a grazer anyway. Like he's not much of a fast eater. So I've okay. got, got that in my corner. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely helps you out. Usually these dogs that, you know, take in two cups of, of food and 10 cups of air while they're trying to eat their food. Those are the ones that really start having some problems. Yeah. Um, also dogs that tend to guzzle water and drink gallons of it at a time. Um those are also the ones that'll, that'll have some issues with it just because they have so much weight in that stomach yeah. to get that wing motion potentially started. And so. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to have to ask my vet about a tacked stomach. <laughs> I'm sure you don't know. Uh, I go, I go to John David at uh, the vet in Glokstad. I don't know if you do. I know John David very well. He was in the class right behind, like, right behind me there at State. So I figured because I was like, you went to Mississippi State, and y'all we look around the same age, and so I, was yeah. like, I probably know John David. So I imagine, oh, yeah. I imagine he knows a thing or two about tacking a tacking a stone. He, he's one that that should follow me. He just killed a hammer of a deer too, if I remember right, not too long ago. Oh yeah, he's always <laughs> yeah, he's a good dude. I, t- I told. Uh, He's the he's the first vet that like I, I didn't start taking him Knox to him until Knox was uh, I think three years old. He's the first vet that Knox has went to that he was like happy to walk in the door. He didn't try to like claw his way out of the building. So I was like, all right, we'll keep coming back to this guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's when that's when you know you're kind of walked into a good clinic is when they're instead of when it when they go through their exams and their kind of appointments in a way where kind of controls the stress and the dogs enjoy it that's really what i like is it's just when they when the dogs enjoy coming in and because it shows that they have a positive outlook on the place instead of being kind of worried about it so yeah oh yeah but there's also hyperthermia issues but i could spend 
another hour talking about overheating stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, man, we'll have to, um, like, I, we'll, we'll have to have you back on, like, around summer or something. We can talk about some yep. of that. Some of that other stuff, but I mean, this has been this has been a lot of good information. I appreciate the time and the insight. I learned, oh, yeah. I learned stuff I didn't expect to learn. <laughs> I said I I like talking any medicine type stuff and um, surgery stuff, but especially when it retain, pertains to working dogs. With all of it, I could go on for hours. Yeah. So, yeah. But you got any other questions or anything? No, man, I, I think we're good. Um, like I said, I, I appreciate the insight. Um, you can be found your uh, Duck Dog Vet on Instagram, correct? Yep. And so it's Duck Dog Vet um, They're on Instagram. We, of course, our clinic, um, Animal Clinic of Oxford's on Instagram, too. We've got all the Facebook stuff as well. Um, but yeah, and if y'all ever have any questions, concerns, or anything, you know, reach out to me. Um, the clinic number is 662 two, three, four, eight, zero, two, two. We're there in Oxford, Mississippi, um, kind of located central ish for a lot of, um, these kind of this, this Mississippi area. Um, and we do a lot of stuff, you know, one of the big things we're known for is, um, Dr. Payne's really built a really big breeding aspect, um, to our clinic. Um, so we'll do a lot of breeding work, really, really, really good at taking a lot of orthopedic stuff and, and approaching that, that a lot of GP clinics want to approach. And so, um, like I said, if y'all, if anybody has any questions, concerns, or wants some clarifications for anything we've talked about, just reach out to us. We're more than happy to, to talk to y'all. So awesome stuff, man. Yeah. Y'all folks out there listening, take care of those dogs. Like if everyone, <laughs> I, I know most people, man, like I'm telling you, I was in that same boat, people that would have these issues with dogs. Like it's not that they're negligent dog owners. They just don't know. So, yeah. uh, I'm hoping this is a, a helpful episode for a lot of people. Um, and yeah, we'll just have to have you back on to cover some more stuff. We'll, we'll definitely do it again. And like I said, that the way I like to explain it is that it's not that you're negligent. If things happen, it's not that you're negligent. They can just set in like the flip of a light switch. And if we start catching some of these, um, you know, small early onset type deals through, you know, whether if it's in the exam room with through client education or, you know, this situation where for a podcast for people to pick up and listen to it while they're driving to duck camp, you know, it's, it's the best thing for it is just to pro continue properly educating these owners. And if we get the, my big thing with and I was talking to um, Rob Kenny over there at Masioka the other day, he was talking about the everything. You know, I told him, you know, if one dog's life is saved, we did our job. Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Man, look, let's, um, like I said, let's do it again. Stay in touch. If I ever do anything for you, just reach out to me. And yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I appreciate the time, man. This was this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. Oh yeah. Well, if y'all like I said, if y'all have anything, just holler. Definitely get you squared, squared away. Gotcha. All right, guys. Well, uh, we're gonna sign off. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll catch y'all back here next time. And as always, thank you for listening to the Speak the Language podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. Thank you.